play that little icebreaker game. What superpower would you take if you could, you know, fly or be invisible or something like that? Have you ever done that? What superpower would you like if you could have just one, you know, it'd be cool to be able to fly like Superman or be strong like the Hulk, right? Maybe even uh, just once, you know, try on those bracelets that Wonder Woman has, you know, just to kind of see how they work out. Maybe not as a full-fledged fashion statement, but just something to try. The, the truth is these characters and those superpowers really appeal to something that has been in the heart of man since creation. The desire to know more, to be more powerful, to be more in control, to be able to surpass the boundaries and the limitations that often frustrate us. We see that from the beginning in Adam and Eve placed in a perfect garden and yet frustrated because they still wanted more knowledge. They wanted to be more like God. And if truth be told, most of us have had similar wishes at one time or another. Either the desire to have uh, some of God's omnipotence, his all power, his perfect, perfection and power so that we could at least have maybe a little bit more control over circumstances or a share of God's omniscience, God's perfect ability to know what was, what is, and what is to come. Uh, maybe not full omniscience, but certainly there are times when we wish we could just know what's ahead, what the week will bring, that we could have just a little bit more knowledge. We struggle sometimes with our own weakness and mortality. As we walk through these last chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes from 8 on through 12, that is one of the things that the teacher is going to continue to bring to mind, and that is our mortality and our ever-growing weakness. He is going to continue to remind us that there is, at least from an earthly sense, an end in sight for all of us, and, and man is moving toward, at least again from a fleshly perspective, his demise. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, where we are today, begins with a question and ends with an answer. And it uses that, that Q&A and the discussion in between to sort of frame a larger discussion about exposing one particular area of our weakness. And it's kind of interesting, this area, because it's an area that, that God calls us to. In fact, as Stuart has preached over the last couple of weeks, we've seen it emphasized in the earlier chapters in Ecclesiastes, and that is this area of divine wisdom, our need for wisdom from God to live out life in this under-the-sun world, as, as Ecclesiastes describes it. For, for all of the wisdom that God gives, and it is sufficient for every circumstance as he promised, there is still a sense in which we know that we are still limited. We are still human beings. We are still finite creatures. Wisdom from above has its limitations. We are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient. We can't control all our circumstances. We don't understand all things. And wisdom, in fact, frequently reminds us of our limitations. It's God's wisdom that often points out to us just how weak and frail and dependent we actually are and how much we need to rely on him. God's wisdom also teaches that our, our craving for more knowledge, more power, can have sinful roots as well. It can simply be a desire to be more like God, but not in a godly sense, more like God in, in how we can somehow 
appease ourselves, do something self-serving. Instead of craving knowledge and power, what we will see in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is the teacher call us to fear and to joy. Those are the two things we'll see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, that while wisdom is valuable, you and I are still limited. Our wisdom only takes us so far. We can't control everything. We don't know all things. And so what we need to find is fear and joy. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1. Here's the question that sets it up. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Start with the question first. Who is wise? Who can interpret things? Who can look at life's circumstances and and interpret even the hard stuff and say, oh, I see what's going on here. I understand this. I can figure this out. Because after all, wisdom is good. Wisdom, as he describes here in verse 1, one of the benefits of wisdom is that wisdom even teaches me things like having the right countenance in the right situation. We're going to see more of this as we go on through this passage, but at least what it hints at is that it's a good to have a good countenance, that, that wisdom reminds us that it's, it's okay to have a, a smile and, and to be cheery sometimes in our expression with others. So as I look around this morning and you are smiling at me, that's an encouragement to me. And, and if, you're, if you're giving me a dark frown, you know who you are. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, you, it, it sends a message. Wisdom helps us in that sense. Wisdom is beneficial in that way. That facial expression we, we gain from wisdom. And it will be important with what the teacher says going on from verse 2. But we've posed the question, really. The first part is where I just want you to focus. Who is like the wise? Who has wisdom? Who can interpret things? Jump all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 17 and watch. You'll see him answer this in more ways than one. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You get the gist of the answer there? Three times in one verse, he essentially says, no can do. The answer to the question of who is wise and can interpret things and and, and just figure it all out, the answer at the end of his discussion will be, and, and he's going to make his case to get there, is no human being. None of us. We are all limited in our understanding. Only God is omniscient. Only God is perfectly wise. Wisdom only takes us so far. So now let's, let's look at how he builds this case in between and where he actually takes us instead. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 8. I say... Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does, the king that is, whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power 
over man to his hurt. All right, this is at least at first glance a somewhat confusing passage to come across, not that we haven't had a share of those as we've walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's actually, I think, quite relatable to all of us, and in some specific ways to many of you, it's very relatable. If you have ever worked for a, a high government authority, or if you are in the military, you, you have commanders over you, you have officers who are in positions that rank higher than you, and so you understand what it is to have those who are in serious authority over your life, who tell you and give you directions as to this is what they want done, and who aren't necessarily always eager to hear everything you have to say about their directions, who aren't always eagerly saying, and so tell me what you think about this order that I've just given you. And so you can, you can relate to this because what he's doing here is he's taking the highest of human authorities, and that is the king. And he's holding him up as an example, the king, the one who, who cannot be re- removed. Short of an overthrow, a coup, or his death, the, the king is in power. And so wisdom advises the, the reader here to treat the king with respect. This is where that part about facial expressions comes to bear. You understand that when you are in the king's court, you should be attentive to the king. And your appearance should show support and encouragement of the king. Even if the king is saying something that that you don't think is quite on the mark, you probably shouldn't glare at the king with sort of an angry frown at what he's saying. That's just not wisdom. Uh, Wisdom says you don't just sort of turn and walk away. Uh, The king does what he pleases. The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? You know, wisdom dictates that when the king says, this is the direction we're going to take, that you don't go, what in the world are you trying to do here? What's the point of this? Wisdom dictates that you show respect, that you, even in communicating disagreement, do so in a humble way. You learn to act with discretion. Uh, The king's decree stands is the the point of what he's arguing here. So long as you are not being commanded to sin, then you obey the king. You honor the king. You do what the authority has said. Because ultimately, and he mentions it here in verse 2, you're being obedient to the king because the king is in that position by virtue of God. God is the one who has ordained that authority in place. And so we are to respond with respect. Teacher goes on, and, and, and down in verse 7 explains that what he's doing here is illustrating from the lesser to the greater. The the king is already a significant authority, but he's using that to illustrate a greater point. Talking about you and I who who cannot control the king, for, for he does not know what it is to be. This is now speaking of you and I as individuals. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. He's saying, just as in the king's presence, you have no power to direct the king's heart. You can't change the king. If the king has given a decree, then the king's decree stands. Just as in the presence of the king demonstrates our limitations in a much greater way, we are limited before God. We don't know the end from the beginning. We, we can't, as, as verse 7, you, you don't know the future. 
You don't have the power to live longer than God has ordained. That's the message in verse 8. You can't keep your spirit longer. You don't have power over when that day is. You can't postpone the day of death, not even by wickedness, as it says there at the end of verse 8. If you can't turn the heart of the king, you certainly can't undo the decree of God. Because we're limited. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent. So wisdom has benefit. It can help you live a godly life in, in, in respecting authority and being humble before authority because you trust that that authority is appointed by God. And, and, and so you, you show reverence. But wisdom has its limitations. I may respectfully try to talk to the king about the tactics that we're using, but I don't control his heart. Even when he sends men into war, that is a decree to be obeyed, as he says in this passage. That is the king's action, and it is to be followed. Even if you back up to verse 5, just this area of our limitation, it, it sounds like at the end of verse 5, the wise heart knows the proper time and the just way. This is the observer in the teacher now speaking. The wise heart knows what to say and knows what to do because verse 6 says there is a time and a way for everything. So the wise heart thinks, okay, there's a, there's a right way to say this and there's a right time to do this. I know there is, and so I proceed. But the problem is verse 7 says, after it tells us that this trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? The problem is, here's the limitation of our wisdom. We can use wisdom, but we still don't know for certain. We're not omniscient. I can't tell you, now is the time to talk to that person, and here is what you should say, and I can't say that to you with absolute certainty. I can't tell you this is how they'll respond when you say that, if you go in this timing and say it this way, because I'm not God. I don't have omniscience. And so wisdom is helpful, and it's helping me to think about the right time and the right way. But in the end, the, the whole lesson we learned back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is there are times and seasons that are appointed by whom? By God. Yeah. God is ultimately the sovereign one. And God is the one who, Ecclesiastes 3 says, makes all things beautiful in their time. It's God is the one who knows the the exact right way and the proper time. He gives us wisdom to be employed in that, but we're not omniscient. So the frustration then for you and I is, as you see a little bit in this example here, is when you encounter some authority over your life who is ungodly or who is not giving biblically oriented directions. And, and there's a temptation to just be frustrated with that even to the point that we see some who use their power, verse 9 says, to hurt and oppress others. We want to fix things now. We want to stop that from happening and turn it around and change it. But we can't, right? Only God can in the end. And so he says in verse 10, raises this dilemma even further. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Again, talking about things we want to fix, injustice that we want to change, a wrong that we want to make right. He's using the idea here of a wicked person's funeral. And, and this wicked person who wasn't, shouldn't be deserving of any kind of praise gets a full processional funeral. And, and, and people are still saying nice things about this wicked person. And, and he's bothered by this. 
Why is this happening? Why are the wicked receiving the benefit of, of any kind of adoration from anyone or any kind of praise? The guy deserved to be punished, and now he looks like he just got away with it. Same thing he goes on to say in terms of sentencing. The, the person commits wickedness, doesn't seem to get convicted or sentenced in any kind of speedy time, if ever. And again, it seems to communicate the message that uh, doesn't matter. You get away with it. It's just evil, and that's the way it happens. So here again, God's wisdom helps us because it helps us, it helps us as believers discern between good and evil. It helps us to see this wicked individual and to understand this person for who he is. It, it reminds us to focus on our own obedience, all things that we learn from God's wisdom, that we should focus on us being obedient and, and not just looking at other people, that we need to focus on our own hearts. But the trouble here is the teacher's looking at this going, I, I want to stop this. I want to stop the way this sentencing is done. I want to stop this funeral procession. I want to tell people this is all wrong and, and change it but I'm not omnipotent. I can speak my case and offer biblical wisdom. I can't change hearts. God can do that. I can't. I can't stop people from praising a wicked person or not punishing somebody who deserves it. It's not something you or I control. The temptation in those situations for us, and we see this in our own life, whatever authority that we're looking at, we can get frustrated sometimes if they're not acting in a biblical way. The temptation then is to be frustrated. Look at what he says, verse 12. He's offering an observation again. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Let's deal with the first thing first, which is the apparent contradiction between verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 says, he does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Verse 13 says, but the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So verse 12 is the observer. Verse 12 is the perception. Verse 12 is the same look at things that you and I often take, the short-sighted view which says, oh, look, he's getting away with it. It's the observation that says, this person carries out wickedness and seems to do so with impunity. They, they seem to get away with it. Where's that, that lightning bolt that, you know, we sort of expect, you know, kind of like James and John, you know, calling down the, the, the sons of thunder, right? Calling down some kind of destruction on that person. And we look and go, how do they just keep getting away with this? How do they keep going on as if they're immune from any kind of judgment? Real similar to the message of Psalm 73, where the psalmist there says, look at the wicked. Boy, they are just content, and they have food when other people are starving, and their lives are good. They've got all of these things that would, from a material perspective, look like blessing. Why is this happening? This doesn't seem right. But then in Psalm 73, verse 16, we see that the psalmist has his eyes opened by God. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. And the rest of Psalm 73 is, I came to understand God is just. I came to understand God's eternal righteous judgment and I was able to then say, oh, okay. So even though it doesn't look right now, 
In God's plan, he will judge whatever needs to be judged, and he will do it well and do it righteously. That's what's happening here in Ecclesiastes 8. He sees the wicked one committing evil, looks like a hundred times. If you're one who underlines in your Bible, then I would suggest to you the phrase here, yet I know, is critical to right here in this passage. I see him commit evil, and it looks like his life is going on just fine, if not being prolonged. Yet I know that it will be good for those who fear God, and it will not go well for the evil one. See the point that he's making? I know what it looks like, but I know what I believe. I know what I see and what I'm tempted to, to, to think based on what I perceive, and yet he says, yet I know. And now is when he speaks with certainty. Yet I know that ultimately it goes well for those who fear God. Yet I know that it will not go well for the one who turns his back on God. Yet I know that ultimately for that person, in the scope of eternity, it will not go well. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to sort of live in that gap of I see and, and I, I perceive, and yet I know what biblical truth is. I know what God says in his word. Because we live in this reality that is unjust and unkind and hurtful. And we see things that are unfair and we don't like them. And, and the temptation is we can't fathom, how does a good God let this happen? How does this happen over here when God has said in Romans 8 that he works all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose? And that's why the teacher in Ecclesiastes with a simple little bit of wisdom reminds us, yeah, I see this, but I know this. I know God is good. I know that those who fear God, that he is looking after them and that it will go well for them. I know that ultimately God will judge those who reject him and rebel against him. That's exactly what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is teaching here. Yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God. God's promises must rule over our perceptions. What we see and what we feel needs to still be ruled by what God says is true and right and believe that and hold that. From the beginning of God's dealings with man, God has laid out there is a path of blessing for those who will follow me and those who will trust me. And if you will walk in that path, trust me, I will bless you. And if you will walk contrary to God's ways and reject him, there is a path of cursing. It is from beginning to end in Scripture. And what he calls us is, even when we're here, and it just doesn't look as good as we want it to look, to know that God is certain about his, his truths, to still believe God's word and take him at his word, and to trust that there is blessing for those who fear him, and there is judgment and there is punishment for those who do not. We don't have the power or the knowledge to fix every injustice or to right every wrong. And frankly, since sin entered humankind, there would never be a time then when we would all just get along. It's just the nature of, of sinful, fallen human beings. And that's why we're urged here, and and. This will, the summation that we were memorizing from Ecclesiastes chapter 12 gets to the heart of it. That's why we're urged here to fear God, to bow the knee before our awesome creator, 
God, who is judge of the universe, who is righteous in all his ways, who holds unshakable promises of blessing for his people, and, and to worship him. Because only God is perfect in love and power and purity and timing, knowledge. And so that's why his, his answer here is just fear God. When wisdom brings us face to face with the frailty of our limitations, when it reminds us that we only know so much, we can only do so much, we are limited in power and knowledge, then that's what should drive us to our knees to worship the God who is perfect in knowledge and power, the God who is in control of all circumstances, who is the one who is omniscient and omnipotent. It's then that we should be saying when we're sort of surrounded by these difficult circumstances in the midst of them, then I know that it will be well for those who fear God and trust him. And by faith in his word, we have to allow that belief to extend on into eternity because in this life, it's going to continue to be situations and experiences in an upside-down world that defy the will of God, and we must rest in those who fear God know that it will be well for them. So then he says, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So here's the teacher putting sort of this final stamp on what he's been describing here in terms of the inherent wickedness and injustice and unfairness of the world. The fact that Sometimes good people are treated as if they are wicked, and wicked people get away with things as if they are good, is simply evidence of living in a fallen world. This is just the reality of, of where we are in a fallen and sinful world. And so what do we do with these contradictory, wrong sort of outcomes when the, the good are called evil and the evil are called good? What do we do with that? He says, vanity. Remember the Hebrew word that underlies vanity? Hebel, right? That, that means fleeting, futile. It's, it's there, it's real, but then it's gone. It, it doesn't last for eternity. It vanishes, it disappears. And that's what he's trying to say to us here is that these outcomes on earth that are unfair and we don't like them and there are experiences that are difficult. The decision from the HR department about your job review. The uh, grade that your professor gives on the project that you worked so hard on. Um, whatever the situation might be where you experience what seems to be totally unfair. The action of a judge or a jury that seems just completely out of line with justice. What he reminds us of is all these things that, that have a tendency to shock and anger us. We ultimately have to rest in the fact that they are but hebel. They don't last. They are not eternal judgments. They are here for a season in a fallen world. They don't transcend past it. Remember when you were little and, and they warned you that if you did that, it would go on your permanent record, right? I can go back and look at old report cards that... that and say, you know, Doug is a good student but has a habit of talking while the teacher is teaching in class. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that one wasn't really unjust. It was actually pretty accurate. But, you know, the warning was, this goes on your permanent record. Well, you know what? Ultimately, it's only God's judgments that stand. And so when we look at all of these, these judgments that are 
frustrating and, and, and unfair, and, and life hurts, and they trouble us, and there are consequences. They are not eternal for those who are fearing God. We trust in a good, loving God who will bring to justice all things in the end and who will right the wrongs. We need to look at them, as the teacher does here, as vanity. Yes, they're real. Yes, we should speak into them biblical wisdom. It shouldn't just be sort of a careless perspective. But we can't let them grieve our hearts to the point that we, don't, that we, that we cease to fear God because we understand that his judgments are what lasts and the ones we rest in, these are, are fleeting, they're hebel. It's a lot like what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12 when he says, don't fear the one whose only power is to kill the body and then after that, there's nothing else he can do. The one you need to fear is the one who is able to, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Fear him, I tell you. Fear the one whose judgments are true and right and just and accurate and eternal. Fear him. Bow before God. Fear God. But there's one more thing. Not only just an awesome recognition of who God is and bowing before him, but verse 15 then says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Fear God and be joyful. What a profoundly simple message and yet so crucial. The stuff about this life that is evil is fleeting. It, it, it will not last for eternity. It is hebel. And so the writer in Ecclesiastes is able to say, take heart, be joyful. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't the whole story by any means. This is one, one chapter in a long, long eternal story, and it's fleeting. Rest in this eternal God and in his judgments. Because as he says here, if God's given you food and drink and from what else we've seen in Ecclesiastes, if he's given you fellowship with some loved ones around you, friends, family, if perhaps he's provided a job for you, then, then, then ultimately he's saying, just, just be thankful. Rest in what God's provision is for you. That is him caring for you and looking out for you. That's, that's the part where we say, this is what I see, this is what I know. This provision is from the hand of God, and he's caring for me. One of my old bosses on Capitol Hill, who's a believer, used to like to say, I'm a conservative, but I'm not angry about it. I love that. Regardless of whatever your political persuasion is, you can look at the country and look at the government and find a reason to get angry. They're wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, it's all wrong, right? It's okay to take a stand on what you believe is right, but if you are trusting an eternal God who is a just judge, who is the ruler over this creation, and you, you believe that he is perfectly righteous, then take heart. You can still have joy. This is not all there is. He is in control. We're not. The values of our world are upside down. I mean, there's no question. You, you're tempted to, if you're like me, you're tempted to irritation every time you turn the news on. There's something that will come up that will make you mad every time you turn the news on. 
because we're in a culture that calls evil good and good evil. And what the writer in Ecclesiastes, who's living in the same sort of culture, they just don't have all the media to bombard them with this, what he's able to say is, listen, God is giving you life and breath. God cares for you. You know that. You know that God looks after those who fear him. Rest in him. He'll right the wrongs. He'll judge justly. Doesn't mean you can't speak into them. But he's able to say in the midst of this these terrible circumstances in this upside-down, under-the-sun sort of cultural world, he's able to say, you know what? I commend joy. Be glad. That ought, to, that ought to separate us from the rest of the world as believers in Jesus Christ. That God can say, I commend joy in whatever the circumstances. Still be at peace. Still find gladness in it. Because God's caring for you. He wraps up, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. Again, there's the answer to the question that he started the chapter with is, who is wise? Who can look at all of the complexities of life and the injustice and the oppression and say, oh, I can explain this. I know what's happening here. I know what God is doing. I know what the outcome will be. I can explain it all to you. And the answer is no one except God. Only God. And and so that, that distinction between God and his perfect omniscience, knowing what was, what is, and is to come, and my really limited knowledge and, and frankly, poor memory of what was, that distinction between his omniscience and my limited knowledge, that distinction between his perfect power and ability to be sovereign over events and my ever-growing weakness. You know, the, the older I get, the more I'm looking at my sons going, can you lift this for me? Why don't you guys just carry this in the house? And it, it's just that, that gap that gets wider, I think, as we get older, at least we become more aware of it, is what should drive us to our knees to say what a great God he is, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, and he is so worthy of praise, and and he actually cares about you and I to boot. In all of that power and knowledge, he's still looking after to make sure that I'm fed, got something, glass of water, you know, it is provision. There's no one like God. He alone rules over life and death. God alone administers perfect justice. Man can respond to that difference either in the worldly sense that you get the sense that the writer in Ecclesiastes is dealing with, and that is the sort of shake your fist at God, rebellion, show him, prove to him, I either am not going to believe in you or I'm going to rival you or be like you or, or something like that. And there are people whose opposition to God is fiery and passionate, and they lose sleep. There's the description there in verse 18. When I, when I sit and try to figure all of life out, I can't even sleep. If, if, if the, the person who is just occupied with, what's the answer? What's the answer? I've got to know the answer. Can't even find sleep. He says, well, you'll never succeed on that level because you're not God. You're not omniscient. You don't know all things. Your wisdom won't take you to understand all that. 
And that's why the call for us is fear and joy, humbly adoring and acknowledging who he is and finding great joy in that. Teacher in Ecclesiastes probably lived about a thousand years before Christ. So he's got this wisdom to give us at that point in time. You and I have the benefit of not only knowing this, but of seeing the witness and the gospel, uh, the witness to the life of Christ. And, and, and so we've got all that to add to it to give us joy. Let me just read, and, and you can just follow along as I read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. It says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn on top of, in charge of all of creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the one we bow before. When we see that description in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, it's just reminding us of the greatness of Jesus Christ, that all of this creation came to be through him, that he is the one through whom God the Father makes this and breathes life into it and causes it to exist. In him, all things hold together. We right now, your heart is beating because Jesus Christ is sustaining your heartbeat at this moment. And he calls us that he is the one to bow before, and he is the one in whom we find ultimate joy. You and I don't have the power to fix everything that's wrong or unjust in our own lives and families, much less the rest of the world. You and I have no power at all to stop the clock on life and, and push for a little bit of overtime. We can't change it. You and I cannot with certainty say what will happen in the next second, much less anything else in the future. Because we don't know. We have wisdom to sort of think we have an idea. We don't have omniscience. What we do have is a great and glorious Savior in Jesus Christ. We do have one who is omniscient and who is omnipotent and who in all of that greatness chose to put on human form and the weaknesses that come with it in order to give himself as a ransom on the cross to take our place and bear our sin and die in our place so that you and I might have life, so that you and I might have the full hope and assurance that it will go well for those who fear God. I know, he says, it will go well. Through the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross, God has made a way for enemies who, who think that they can be omnipotent or omniscient or, or can somehow rival God. He has made a way to bring enemies to peace and to reconcile them. And the, the, the best part about it, too, is as a bonus, he gives us wisdom. <laughs> he doesn't just save us, but he still calls out to us and says, now you lack wisdom, ask for it. Just like he does in the book of James. You're in a trial, you need wisdom, ask for it. I'm here to, to minister to you. The one who knows all things, who is omniscient, is kind enough to come to us and say, you need some wisdom here. Let me see what I can give you through my word. Let me speak to your soul through my spirit and, and the ministry of the word. That is a reason to bow before him in humble adoration, isn't it? And it is a reason that we can commend joy and be glad. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, you are uh, so awesome. And, and again, we, uh, we use that word and it, it barely characterizes what Colossians 1 describes there. The one who is before all things, who is preeminent, who sustains all things, who made all things, who by his sacrifice made the way to reconcile us to the Father. Thank you for that. Thank you for the cross and for the hope that is found in it. Father God, we thank you for, in our, in our discontented, sometimes dissatisfied craving to know more or control more, thank you for grace and mercy to come to us and to open our eyes, to settle on the fact that we we may not be able to, to fix things at that moment. We may not understand the situation at that moment. But what we can know for certain is even better. And that is your promise that it will go well for those who fear you. Thank you for that hope, for that assurance spoken through the, from the writers of Scripture throughout its pages. Thank you for the, the kind care, the accurate and eternal judgment the true righteousness, the sustaining breath, all that you provide and continue to provide. And Lord, we long for that day when we will stand before our creator God and bow before you in eternity. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.